We're continuing our journey through 2 Corinthians. And if you remember, uh, two weeks ago, Pastor uh, Tim preached from uh, the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of uh, chapter 6 on uh, reconciliation. That's where Paul talks about uh, reconciliation between us and, and God himself. We know from scripture, we know from life experience that, that sin has consequences, doesn't it? And so not only are we uh, guilty because of sin and, and thusly uh, required to pay the penalty of death because of our sins, but our relationship with God is fractured as well due to sin. Uh, th- that's seen all the way back, you can go back to Genesis chapter 3. And with the very first sin in the history of mankind, you can already see that fractured relationship. You see all throughout the Bible, God's people struggle to maintain a right relationship with God. That's all because of sin. And it's only through then the death and uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ that these, that problems are given for, uh, excuse me, that solutions are given for these problems. So we know that our penalty of death has been paid, and so we are then in turn declared righteous. We are gifted eternal life through Jesus. We also know that our relationship with God is able to be restored. That's, that's the reconciliation that Paul talks about in chapter 5 and in chapter 6. God reconciles us to himself through the work of Jesus. And as a result then of this wonderful new reality, Paul, Paul wrote to the church in Corinth that we're not just reconciled to God, but, but we're given a task in this whole ministry of reconciliation. So through us, God continues to, to call humans to himself, to call humans in the world to himself. He draws people to himself through his work within us. So it is, it is a blessing and, and a privilege to not just be reconciled to God, but, but also to see God work through us as he carries out his purposes in, in the world and in the lives of others. Well, as, as people who've been reconciled to God and as people who've been called to be an ambassador of reconciliation for God, this naturally ought to impact not just the vertical relationship with God, but, but horizontal relationships as well. Reconciliation is not, not strictly limited to the relationship between us and God. It, it pours out into human-to-human relationships also. So uh, you think about it, what, what kind of testimony do we give if we proclaim the power of the gospel to reconcile us to God, but then live a life that's filled with broken relationships with other people? What kind of testimony would that proclaim? There's a big conflict of interest there, right? Where we would say, well, reconciliation is possible, it happens with God, but then if it's not seen in human-to-human relationships, there's a disconnect there. So what we're going to see this morning as we explore 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is we're going to see reconciliation in Paul's life on that human-to-human level. We're going to see the story of reconciliation between Paul and the church in Corinth. 
And, and one thing I, I think you'll probably notice as we read through the passage this morning is that, that there are just a large number of emotions which are referenced in the text. You know, Paul shares with the church in Corinth and consequently with us as well just how much he cared for that body of believers. And, and what we're going to see today is that personal reconciliation and action and, and kind of all the emotions that come with that as well. Now, now Paul and the church in Corinth had, had come upon a, a rocky season, if you want to call it that, in their relationship together. And, and so I, I want to give a quick recap of that uh, relationship before we get into chapter 7 this morning. And, and if you tuned in online when we began this sermon series, way back in chapter 1, uh, some of this will be re, uh, review for you, but, uh, but even so, it's, it, it's good to be refreshed because the, the details of chapter 7, I believe, it, 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 it's a passage that's not just meant to be studied intellectually, but felt emotionally as well uh, because of just all the descriptions that Paul uses. So, so just to, to refresh our memory, if you remember, I, I said back in week one that there are more, le- there presumably, most likely, were more letters written to the church in Corinth from Paul than just the two that we have in our Bibles. So, so uh, and then there's probably at least four letters that, that we would say were written by Paul to the church, as well as at least two visits at the time of the text this morning, and we probably was one more visit that came after what we'll read in 2 Corinthians. But, but the first visit from Paul uh, was when he planted the church. It was a visit of about 18 months or so. Paul left town and probably wrote his first letter to the church, uh, which has been lost to history. Um, as, as Paul continued to travel around and his missionary journeys, as he continued to plant churches, at some point he received an update about how things were going in Corinth with the church there, uh, an update that apparently brought to light some matters that needed to be addressed and also some questions that they had for Paul. And so in response, Paul wrote another letter. He sent it with Timothy to the church. And that letter, of course, is 1 Corinthians that we have in our Bibles. That's 1 Corinthians. Now beyond that, the the details are a little murkier. We kind of have to piece things together with what we've got. But but we know that Paul made a second trip to Corinth at some point in between 1st and 2nd Corinthians. He made another visit to the, to the city. Not exactly sure why, but, but for whatever reason, during the second visit, Paul describes it as a painful one. You see that in chapter 2 of 2nd Corinthians. It was a painful visit. It, and it seems from clues within 2nd Corinthians that Paul was personally attacked in some way presumably by someone within the church. Now, uh, it doesn't seem like it's a physical attack. It's not that Paul was physically beaten up. What, what it seems is that Paul was attacked personally, maybe his character or his apostolic style or, or, or something along those lines. He was attacked by someone in the church. And we don't have, again, we don't have firm details at this point, but it seems that the response of the church body to that whole situation was what really caused Paul pain. Someone within the church attacked Paul, but what, and I'm sure that hurt, but what really caused him pain was the response of the church at large. Maybe the church body froze. 
Perhaps that's what, what happened. Maybe they, they failed to hold fast to what they knew to be true about Paul and about Paul's character. Uh, maybe they kept silent and they, they didn't back Paul up in the, in the face of this false accuser. It could have been something like that. Perhaps the church body overreacted to the situation. Uh, you know, maybe they came down hard on this person that, that uh, attacked Paul. Maybe they turned on one of their own and treated him or her quite poorly. Um, perhaps they joined in with the attacks. You know, it could have been that. Maybe, maybe they began to be swayed by this attacker and began to question Paul themselves. We don't know for certain how the church responded. If you wanted my opinion, I think based on the tone and the context of, of chapters two through seven, I think that it seems like the church froze I think that uh, they kept silent in the face of this confrontation that Paul had with this person. I'm not willing to die on that hill, but, but if you ask my opinion, that's, uh, that's where I think I would fall. But in any case, the church's response so impacted Paul that he left town and felt the need to write a, a third letter to the church after he left. And, and we know from chapter two, along with what we're gonna read in chapter seven, that was a painful letter. And again, this is a letter that's lost to history. We don't have it. But Paul describes it as a painful letter. He was in anguish, he says, when he wrote it, and even regretted it a bit once he had done so. He was, he was worried that this letter would cause further harm rather than leading to healing in the relationship. So whatever the specific details were, it's safe to say that the relationship between Paul and the church was damaged. And if Paul didn't care about the church body, if he just didn't care, then it wouldn't have bothered him. Wouldn't have bothered him one bit, but he did care about them. He cared deeply about them, and so he wrote that, that painful letter to the church. Uh, you know, he, he was so bothered that he, he sent that letter with Titus, and once he had done so, he was so bothered by it all that he couldn't even wait for Titus to come back to the rendezvous point. Paul left the ministry where he was at and he went further up the road to try to connect with Titus sooner to hear how things had gone when the church had received that letter. So that's where Paul left off the story way back in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. In chapter 2, verse 13, you know, he said that, uh, verses 12 and 13, he says, you know, he didn't find Titus when he was in Troas, so he went on to Macedonia. And then you get this kind of tangent from chapter 2, verse 13, all the way down through chapter 7. If you took out that section, you, you wouldn't even know it. All right, it flows right in. Now, it's a tangent I'm glad Paul took. He, he was defending his ministry. You know, there, there's some landmark passages in chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6 that I'm so glad Paul wrote about. But when we get to chapter 7, the, the story moving forward, if you will, picks up again. So Paul has went to Macedonia. He's trying to find Titus sooner. Let's see what Paul writes in chapter 7, verse 2. This is where the story picks up. Paul says, Make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. 
For even when we came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So we found him. He found Titus there in Macedonia. Verse 7, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that that letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, At every point, you've proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, that's Paul himself, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still more at the joy of Titus, because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater, as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. There's emotion dripping from that passage, isn't there? this relationship between Paul and the church in Corinth. So as Paul journeys to Macedonia, he finds Titus, which is, which is a joy in and of itself. Paul says God comforted us by sending Titus. But then Paul also received from Titus good news from the church in Corinth. It wasn't bad news. It was great news about their response to the whole situation. They had received Paul's bold letter the letter that Paul kind of regretted writing after he had sent it, but they repented of their action. So so whatever the church did or didn't do in response to that whole thing where Paul was attacked, they've come to see the error of their ways. They've repented. They've, They've reconfirmed their care and concern for Paul as their spiritual father who brought the gospel to them. The very gospel that brought reconciliation between them and God has brought reconciliation between them and Paul as well. It really is wonderful to see this reconciliation take place. Paul could have given up on the church. He could have left town and just said, that's it, I'm done, never coming back. There's lots of other places I can go. Paul could have done that. Paul could have assumed that the church was never going to change. The church could have given up on Paul. They, they could have said, We've wronged him so much that there's just no way that he'll forgive us. We've permanently blew it. There's nothing we can do about it. But the wonderful message of the gospel is that reconciliation is always possible. It's always possible. And we see it here with Paul and the church. 
But we might be able to think of relationships in our own lives as well, where there's a need of reconciliation. You know, perhaps the need has been present for decades, maybe. If God can bring about reconciliation between him and us vertically, then, then he's able to bring about reconciliation between us and that other person horizontally as well. Now, I, I realize the saying goes, it takes two to tango, right? I mean, I, I realize that. Uh, you know, and perhaps your efforts toward reconciliation have been rejected in the past. And that, that happens. Uh, I encourage us to, to continue in prayer, in those instances especially, to continue seeking that restored relationship. I, I'm not gonna stand here and promise that it's going to happen someday. I am saying that it's possible that it can happen someday through the power of the gospel. But I can't promise that it's going to happen. Not, not all relationships uh, are reconciled between God and humans through Christ, right? Not, not everyone finds that reconciliation with God. They could, not everyone does. Same with human to human. Not all relationships are reconciled between humans. They could be, though. Just because they're not doesn't mean they can't be. So, so don't throw in the towel. Don't, don't give up. Don't assume it can never happen. Continue in prayer. Continue seeking reconciliation with, with that other person. And likewise, let's, if we're on the other side of that, let, let's not close ourselves off to someone who's seeking reconciliation with us. Uh, the pain may be deep. The, the hurt may be very severe. But we shouldn't close ourselves off to reconciliation that someone else is seeking with us either. You know, we, we, uh, we see a wonderful example of reconciliation in chapter seven between Paul and the church body. It led to great joy in Paul's life. It led to comfort in Paul's life. And when we think about our own relationships as well, reconciliation is possible. It is possible in the power of God. If it's not, then, then our gospel has, has there, there's no need to proclaim it if reconciliation between humans isn't possible. But it is because of the power of the gospel, because of what God does, because of forgiveness that can be received and offered. And so, so as believers, as those who've been reconciled to God, we ought to pursue that. We ought to continue to pursue that for as long as it takes. As... As Paul shares his personal experience with us, as I said, it's a blessing to see that reconciliation taking place between humans. But I also want to spend our time this morning uh, focusing on a few specific lessons that I think we can take from the story as Paul shares it. Um, these all definitely relate to reconciliation directly, but but uh, they aren't necessarily limited to reconciliation. So... So they can go beyond that as well. So, so the things I want to highlight, the, the, the first thing is that being downcast, uh, times of being downcast, times of being depressed, those times come upon us as human beings. They do. Uh, this is a direct result of living in a fallen world. That's part of it. Um, we, we experience the brokenness in our world in many different ways. Sometimes that's through 
broken arm, sometimes it's through heart disease, sometimes it's through cancer. Sometimes we experience the fall through times of down, being downcast, times of being depressed. That's part of the fall. The, this, this topic is one which, which is probably too often overlooked in, uh, in Christian circles, but, but one that is real nonetheless. Being downcast, being depressed is not something that we have to hide. And, and I think we, we especially need to know this right now. I heard, I heard someone use the phrase a few weeks ago, uh, COVID fatigue, as they were talking about just all of it, right? I mean, everything that's come along with it. And I thought that's, that is a real thing right there, COVID fatigue, and how that can lead to, to being downcast, being depressed, uh, you know, all of the losses and decisions and uncertainty that, uh, that they take their toll on us. They take their toll on us mentally and physically and emotionally as well. You know, I'm thankful that Paul was open and vulnerable about his experiences in this matter. You know, the, his situation was, was one of desiring reconciliation, but he found himself being downcast in the midst of that. He, he says it. He says that he experienced struggles from outside and, and fear or anxiety from within. I mean, Paul's putting it out there. He says, uh, he's basically saying, I'm, I'm in a rough spot right there. That's why I'm desperately trying to find Titus to get this news from him. I mean, Paul was so unsettled that he couldn't wait for Titus to come to the spot they had agreed upon. Uh, you know, I, I think about this. Th- this is not this, a picture of Paul. It's, it's not a picture, I think, of someone who is, who is resting well at night and who is experiencing complete inner calmness <laughs> in his life. He was downcast because of the damaged relationship between him and the church in Corinth. And it weighed on him and it affected him. And yet, just as Paul had done in, uh, in chapter one, he says it again in chapter seven, he proclaims again that God is a God who comforts the downcast. God comforts the downcast. And, and I, I think God does this in so many different ways. There's so many ways that God can bring us comfort. He, Comfort comes when we remember that God himself dwells within us as believers. He'll never leave us. He'll never forsake us. I think there's comfort that comes in that. Um, there's, there's comfort that comes with the belief that God is sovereign over all things. doesn't mean I understand exactly how he's working things out, but knowing that he's sovereign, knowing that he works all things for the good of those who love him, there's comfort in that. But, but even beyond those kind of grand theological truths, I think God brings comfort in other ways. In Paul's life, comfort came just through finding Titus. Paul found comfort in that. Comfort came from seeing the joy in Titus's life. Comfort came with the report that Titus gave about how the church in Corinth received the letter. And so, so it's not always these, these, these deep theological truths that, that can and do bring us comfort. Sometimes it's God working through other people as well. You know, maybe it's somebody dropping cookies off at the front door or a conversation with them. I mean, it can, be, it can be anything that God can comfort his people, and he does doesn't matter what is at the root of our being downcast or being depressed. God is the God of comfort. He's able to supply what we need uh, 
scripture talks about this in so many different places. Um, Psalm 47 is a good one where it talks about God healing the brokenhearted. Now, I, this doesn't mean that there's no, no place for professional counselors or, or various kinds of, of, uh, of medicine. Just as God brings comfort through his presence, through the presence of others in our lives, God can bring comfort through counseling as well. That's very much one of the ways that he works. Um, you know, I, I don't think we have trouble integrating prayer with physical medical help. I think we do that all the time. Um, I, I stood up here a few weeks ago and asked uh, that, that we'd be praying for my mom as she had uh, her surgery. And, and we probably didn't even think twice about that, right? Prayer and, and medical medical help, intervention, all, all working together, right? Well, I, I think when it comes to mental and, and emotional medical help, that we ought to view that the same way, that there can be an integration there between prayer and between, between counseling or, or other forms of, of help. And, and it, again, it's not, it's not like we're stepping out of God's realm of sovereignty. We wouldn't say that about going to, to the, for lack of a better term, a physical doctor, right, for, for physical ailments. And I don't think we should think that way with mental and emotional ailments as well. God is sovereign over all of that. He works supernaturally through prayer. He works supernaturally through others as well. But God promises and, and shows time and time again that he comforts the downcast. And so when we find ourselves in that situation, it's nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing to, to cower in fear over, but to go to God and, and to seek the comfort that, that we need and that he has promised to give to us. So I think we can take that lesson from Paul. Uh, another lesson that we see here uh, from Paul's experience, he talks in verses uh, 8 and 9 and 10, 11 about a difference between godly grief and worldly grief. You might say that this is the difference between being sorry for our sins and being sorry that we got caught in our sins. It's kind of a difference there, isn't there? I would say one of those is, is godly grief and one of those is worldly grief. Worldly grief, is, as Paul describes it, is a, a type of grief that doesn't come from a, a concern about our relationship with God. It doesn't come from a concern about God's commands. It doesn't come from a concern about how other people are affected by our sins. Yeah, worldly grief comes from our sinful nature and I think has selfishness at its root, to be honest. Yeah, we're sorry that we got caught. Now we have to face the consequences. Uh, you know, we're, we're, we're sorry that our own wants and desires weren't able to be met like we had hoped. We're, we're, we're sorry that next time we have to try a little bit harder and it's more frustrating to not get caught the next time. That, that, that's worldly grief right there. That comes from selfishness. That type of grief leads us farther away from God. That, that type of grief, as Paul says, leads to death. It produces death. Godly grief, on the other hand, that's grief that I would say does come from a, a concern about our relationship with God. It does come from a concern about God's commands and a concern about how others are affected. That type of grief leads us to repentance because we've seen the error of our ways and, 
and, and we desire restoration. We desire that reconciliation with God and with others. We desire to be forgiven, not just to not get caught the next time. Godly grief is different. It values reconciliation more than the sinful desire that we gave into. That's godly grief. Worldly grief leads to, I would say, an increasing hardening of one's heart, which we don't want because that is such a dangerous road to travel. But godly grief leads to the softening of one's heart, which is exactly what we want to happen when we fall into sin, that there's a softening there, that we repent, come back to God. Now, godly grief there's still pain there, there's still sorrow there, but it leads to repentance and it leads to salvation and instead of rejection of God, instead of death. So I'm not gonna pretend like godly grief is this fun thing to, you know, to participate in. It, it's still grief, <laughs> but it's a grief that will direct us back toward God instead of away from him. So I think, I think what we must do is, is humbly come before God and ask that you know the next time we find ourselves in a place of error the next time we find ourselves having sinned in some way or another that the grief we experience will be godly grief that he will stir that up within us instead of a worldly grief you know I, and honestly I was I was thinking about this when it comes to um, kids and I think you know we can think about grandkids as well as we disciple our kids and grandkids when, when they commit sin, do we respond in such a way that will lead them toward godly grief or worldly grief? I was thinking about that uh, this past week. Do we just dole out punishments in such a way that they'll probably just try harder not to get caught next time? Or do we walk with them through the situation and, and, and help teach them about the nature of sin and God's response to sin and, and the impact of sin on ourselves and others. One of those roads is a lot more difficult to walk than the other. I mean, the easy road is just to say, well, you, you did this, here's the punishment, deal with it, suck it up, right? You made the bad choice. That's the easier way to deal with it. The harder way is to, to engage in the situation and, and you know, really seek God through it all, you know, man, I, I'm tempted to take that easy road far too often and just say, well, here's the punishment, you know, enjoy. Instead, man, I, I think when we, when we take the time to view our sin from God's perspective and help our kids and our grandkids in that as well, that leads to godly grief. It leads to repentance. It leads to, to reconciliation between them and God and between them and, and whoever might have been... Uh, whoever might have been harmed because of sin. So, uh, and again, this isn't just with kids and grandkids. I think we gotta ask ourselves this question in our lives as well. When, when I sin in my life, what type of grief do I typically experience? Is it worldly grief or is it godly grief? I think, I think that's a good question to ask and, and pray that God would, would lead us into that godly grief that finds repentance and reconciliation well, the last thing I can, I think we can take from, uh, from Paul's uh, story here as he talks about reconciliation is, is the joy that that brought in his life. You see, you see that scattered all throughout the passage here. 
But the work of reconciliation is work. <laughs> it is work, all right? It, it requires engaging in the broken relationship. It, it requires offering forgiveness. It requires receiving forgiveness. To, to neglect the work and, and simply ignore the situation or try to erase the situation only leads to further damage. There, there is work in reconciliation and, and we as fallen humans don't always want to engage in that work. And, and I think that this is, uh, you see it very prevalent in our culture right now with the, <laughs> the most recent new phrase of 2020, right? Cancel culture. We see it all over the place. Many people seek a solution to a problem, a solution to a hurt by just attempting to erase anything that has caused strife in the past. And so that's why statues are being tore down and, and TV shows are being canceled and, and sports teams have to change their names and all of that. It, it's, in a, it's, it's not an engagement in reconciliation. It's an attempt to just get rid of things, to ignore it, to, to, to make it go away in any way possible. And, and we've reacted in this way on an individual level, I think, for a long time, and it's kind of just now really being seen a, on a more broader cultural scale, but, but when you think about it individually, in our social media-driven culture, what do we do individually when someone hurts us or disagrees with us in a damaging way? Click, bye-bye, right? Unfriended, unfollowed, I don't, I don't want to deal with it, you're, you're gone, right? We tempt to erase them out of our digital lives, for sure, but, but probably then real life as well, right? If we just kind of get rid of the situation, then I don't have to deal with it. We, we seek to cancel them out of our lives. And, and, and maybe it's not on, on social media. Maybe it's the neighbor that, that we just ignore, just never talk to. Maybe it's the, the family member we don't ever speak with at gatherings. You know, maybe it's the coworker that we avoid, take the long way to the bathroom so we don't ever have to see him. I mean, it, there's lots of ways that this plays out. But I think what we see as Paul shares his testimony is that true lasting joy does not come through, through canceling or, or erasing all those with whom we have conflict. That does not lead to the joy that, that Paul talks about. Real joy comes from seeking and finding reconciliation that has the gospel as its foundation. That's where real joy comes from. I think it's probably always easier in the moment to just avoid reconciliation, to just you know click unfriend or to tear down a statue or whatever. It's easier to do that than to dive into the mess and seek reconciliation. But that's what we're called to as believers. Paul said it, we are ministers of reconciliation. And it's not just this way, it's this way as well. We are called to engage in that. I think as we do that, as Paul shared his experience, that'll be ours as well. We'll find joy. We will find joy in that reconciliation that takes place. We're truly blessed, I think, this morning to kind of see behind the curtain of, of uh, the reconciliation that took place between Paul and between the church and Corinth. Um, and as we're going to see starting next week, uh, Paul wasted no time then 
addressing a couple of touchy subjects with the church. And honestly, I don't think he could have done it if reconciliation hadn't, take pla- hadn't taken place. The next two chapters, he talks about financial giving. Right, try to do that without a good relationship with the church. I mean, what we see here is that Paul is able to dive into some other topics with them because of the restored relationship that they experienced. And you think about us, you know, for us, our, our current home as well is a, a fallen world that is marred by sin. That's, that's where we live. I don't have to like it, but that's where we live right now. We experience the effects of that daily. And so as a result, I, I think Paul gave us some good things to, uh, to think about, to, uh, to pray about in this. You know, when, when because of the fall, because of the effects, when we, when we experience those times of being downcast, being depressed, we look to God who gives us comfort. Um, when, when, we, when we are in error ourselves, when we fall into sin, when we're confronted with our sins, we ought to seek that godly grief instead of worldly grief. And then, and we ought to be people that discover lasting joy through reconciliation rather than, rather than through canceling, rather than through erasing. Um, reconciliation is a wonderful thing. It, it, it's meant to be a defining characteristic of God's people. A reconciliation with him, of course, but with each other as well. The church is to be defined in that way. So we ought to walk in that. We ought to let God lead us in that, and we ought to, in doing so, then live out the gospel everywhere that we go. Would you stand with me? Let's, let's close in prayer and, and continue praising the, the wonderful God that we serve.